It's really good to see you all. I've been away for two weeks. You may not have known that, but I do. I've been away for two weeks. I've been in Dallas, Texas, serving the First Unitarian Church of Dallas, and it is a thriving community of faith, and I was very honored to be asked to preach and teach while their lead minister was on sabbatical. It was great to get a chance to see how other communities do things, you know, like what are their patterns of worship, their cultures of care, of welcoming, and problem solving. And I have to admit, on that first Sunday, I kind of had the jitters. Uh, it's a really big church, one of our biggest in the denomination, and I was, I got up to the pulpit and gave my sermon, received well, hallelujah. And so I, I got done, and I went, oh, I'm glad that's done. Now I can just kind of relax. So I, I went out with my colleagues, had a little lunch, and got back to the house that I was staying and just happened to glance at the TV as I was making my way to my room, and I see 26 dead in Sutherland Springs, Texas, during the worship service at First Baptist Church, just a few hours away. I was uh, stunned, disgusted. I was overwhelmed and full of sadness. I wasn't quite sure what to do with one more mass shooting just six days after the attack in New York, 43 days after the shooting in Las Vegas, a year and a half from the killings in South Carolina. I really didn't know what to do. So I started to say and evoke the names of those who had been killed in Sutherland or New York or Vegas and Charlottesville before each meditation each day. Just try to hold some of those names in my being and just consciously slow down to push against a culture that keeps shouting its bad advice. Nothing's going to change. This is the new normal. Get over it. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. It seems like we're in a centrifuge machine. You know, that machine that spins an object so fast and so furiously that the component parts of the whole cannot withstand the speed or the spin and so are forced into separation. Whatever qualities and strengths that keep the whole together are lost, and the separate parts are flung in any number of directions to the outermost reaches or clinging to the inner axis. We are being able, we are being asked to comprehend the incomprehensible over and over again at breakneck speeds. We are spun so fast, so furiously in our daily lives that our relatedness to one another, our connection to what is whole and holy, is barely holding. 
Individual rights are divorced from communal responsibility. Gratification is divorced from conscience. Religion is divorced from our real-world actions and relationships. Scientific discovery and innovation is divorced from humility and awe. And politics is certainly divorced from principle. Nothing makes sense. So, so many of us resort to cynicism or simply praying that we are not the next one to fall in the mayhem. Yet hidden in the rubble, hidden in that mayhem of disaster, is a clue to finding our way back or maybe finding a way forward. In her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, essayist and social critic Rebecca Solnit studied and examined all kinds of disasters. The 1906 earthquake and fires in San Francisco, the Halifax munitions cargo ship explosion of 1917, the Mexico City earthquake of 1985, the events of 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. And what she found was extraordinary and affirming. In disaster after disaster, what she found was that people would respond to these events in communitarian ways. That in the face of disaster, whatever we think separates us falls away and we see a glimpse of who we really are and what our society could become. Solnit writes, just as many machines reset themselves to their original settings after a power outage, so human beings reset themselves to something altruistic, communitarian, resourceful, and imaginative after a disaster. We revert to something we already know how to do. In Katrina, all kinds of people jumped into boats, many of them from Texas, heading into the disaster, not running away from it, but towards it. They didn't say to themselves, well, I can't save everybody, so I don't think it'll make a difference if I try. I think I'll just stay home today. No. No, they jumped in their single-engine boats, their rowboats, and headed towards the deep water and started pulling kids and grandfathers and mothers off their roofs and into safety. Solnit says that the trouble arises not in our improvised collective responses, but in top-down initiatives that dampen our natural surge towards citizenship and connection. For example, President Bush encouraging us all to shop after 9-11. Or even worse, this fascinating and frustrating web of social media and traditional news sources that amplify a false narrative that people behave badly in crisis. And what Solnit then says, it evokes this sense of of panic, elite panic 
is what she calls it. I will add white panic. And it is the source of so many bad and quite frankly racist decisions like the militarized response to the Katrina disaster where instead of people being helped and rescued, New Orleans was turned into a prison. And people were treated like animals. Now in Minnesota, our reset button gets activated at least once a year. And I'm always very happy about this. It's usually when a big blizzard comes. And we all walk out of our doors and look down the block and see all the snow piled high over every car. And we nod our heads, turn around, get on our snow suits, put on our snow boots, get our shovel and our snow bowler, and we all start digging one another out. And it's just not a neighbor helping neighbor kind of thing. Invariably, and I swear to God, it happens every year, some guy comes down the street with a hitch and a chain and says, hey, can I help pull you out? Nobody knows who this guy is. <laughs> he just shows up, and it's a different guy every year. You know what I'm saying? There is something about disasters and even horrific events of violence that resets something in our being. And we remember who we are, what we are. Jeremiah described it long ago as a covenant inscribed on our very hearts, this bond of love and right relationship. You don't learn it from a school. It's just in you, placed in you from your very inception. The grace we are out looking for in the desert is out looking for us. And we can access it, Jeremiah says. We don't run into disaster out of fear and despair. We run into the flames and the flood or the snowstorm or the rain of bullets out of love. Last Sunday, I watched as Stephen Williford, or a couple Sundays ago, the neighbor who confronted Devin Kelly outside First Baptist Church, I watched him speak as tears clung to every word. I'm not a hero, he said. I'm not brave. I don't want the focus to be on me or anything I did. I want our attention to be on my friends my neighbors who lost their lives today. These are my people. Now, I know Stephen Williford is being used as a poster boy for the NRA, but I ask you to look beyond the rhetoric and the false narrative of either-or thinking and recognize the covenant of love from which Stephen Williford was moved to act. Over and over, he talked about being incredibly scared, standing in his stocking feet, confronting the shooter, running toward disaster, not from it, running toward the stranger in the pickup, and both of them heading into danger without hesitation. 
Peggy Warden did not throw her body over her 18-year-old grandson out of fear. Nor did her grandson then kick at a young girl to stay underneath the pew out of despair. None of these folks said so in words, but they proclaimed it indeed. We are compelled to act by love. We are here to love. Now, I'm not talking about that syrup and saccharine kind of love that we are bombarded with in commercials and romantic comedies. I'm talking about this self-expending, other-affirming, community-forming power of love. That is my understanding of what God is what the God flow is, a self-expending, other-affirming, community-forming power. This is where I place my trust, in this covenant inscribed in our hearts that is accessed and rebooted within us, even in the mayhem. At a gathering of professional and religious leaders, the Dalai Lama asked, what is the cause of suffering? And the leaders listed poverty, injustice, war, racism, alienation. And after listening for a while, he stopped them and said, no, no. The cause of suffering is when good people begin their work together and fail to notice what is between them. Jesus put it this way. Take this most seriously. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is a no in heaven. What you say to one another is eternal. I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all on earth and make a prayer of it, God goes into action. Whenever two or more are gathered together in these pews, in the snowstorm, in racial justice actions, in meetings, in work, and we make a prayer of it, we access a sacred geometry, the sacred geometry of two or three connected. We remember what is between us, whole and holy, and manifest heaven on earth. Yes, we come together at church to find solace and refuge, but we do more than that. We are here to remember ourselves. Remember, reattach to that covenant placed in our hearts that is altruistic, communitarian, resourceful, and imaginative. That covenant that says we are not meant to be isolated and separate. We are meant to be together and connected in love. When a sanctuary or a temple becomes a site of violence and the perpetrator tries to explode our trust in community, our faithful fellowship, it is a tragedy. But it has yet to disprove or break the sacred geometry. 
Example after example attests to this fact. The people of Charlottesville, South Carolina, Oak Creek, Wisconsin, or Knoxville, Tennessee, refused to close their church doors or shut down their sanctuary. Instead, they walked right back into those holy spaces. Right back in and said, we're not going to stop. We're not going to cower in our homes or retreat into despair. We're going to go right back into that sanctuary and claim what we know to be true. Some scholars believe that the passage we just read from Jeremiah was read over 2,500 years ago by a group of people standing in the rubble of the Temple of Jerusalem after it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Our task as people of faith is to access and hold true to that covenant inscribed in our hearts, that wellspring of connection and love without the crisis or the pressure, without the disaster as our impetus and to align our lives with the fundamental power of love. Solomon says it this way, that it is the great contemporary task of being human. I, for one, think that this church is a way of, just, of doing just that, of getting out of that centrifuge machine to remember and reawaken the covenant inscribed on our hearts. Our church and many others are places where we slow down enough to remember ourselves and affirm a central goodness from which we will act to heal ourselves and heal the world. It's also a place where we come to expand our perceptions and invite learning, wholeness, and joy. Each of us in fact, every living creature, every living thing has a lens by which we perceive the world, whether we like it or not. We choose what we are going to notice, and the rest kind of goes away. A dog uses its hearing and sense of smell. A bat uses sound. But it's only a part of the world. And we humans are no different. We all live this life with blinders on, whether we like it or not. If church is doing what it's supposed to do, it expands our perceptions. It teaches us how to lean into other ways of knowing, ways of slowing down in order to notice more, awaken more, do what is fair and just, more, be compassionate and loyal in our love, more. If church is doing what it's supposed to do, it invites us into that sacred geometry of twos and threes, each acknowledging our piece of the truth, but that we don't know the whole truth. And we become an open, learning, thriving system that can and does create greater goodness. Meg Wheatley calls that an island of sanity. And I will testify that when First Universalist made a central commitment to racial justice and using that commitment to live out our faith and navigate our work, we made a 
pivotal decision. We decided to become a thriving community, an open learning, thriving system that can and does create a greater goodness. We decided to become a living church, not a dying church, an island of sanity. For many members and friends who are white, it was a growing recognition of the white supremacist framework that advantages everything white people do and everything white people are. For members and friends of color, as told to me, it was a call to live in authentic coherence and congruence with our Unitarian Universalist Constitution, our seven principles, and live those together. As one person said to me, we stopped playing at church and started doing church. Look around you, friends. I mean it, really. Look around. <laughs> Take it in. Open your spirit and be held in this body of believers. This sacred geometry, this island of sanity. Friends, this is who is swimming beside you. Celebrate it. Banish the word struggle from your vocabulary. And be moved. Go out into the world in sacred purpose and knowing knowing that we are connected and we know what is between us, knowing that we are all in search of grace, knowing that we can and do access a covenant of love and right relationship more frequently than our current society tells us that we can, knowing that love is self-expending, other-affirming, community-forming, and it will not let us go. We can trust what is inscribed in our hearts. Amen. <laughs>